What's up, guys? Welcome to the Covenant Podcast with your host, Matt Chartrick, and myself, Peter Fendera. This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nursing topics, one conversation at a time. Thank you guys for tuning in to this couple of news episode. Thank you guys for listening every Friday. Make sure you check out us on YouTube. We got a bunch of cool vlogs. If you guys want to see our faces for the podcast, there's a face to this voice. We all, we look pretty good. We look pretty cool. If you guys want to check us out on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you guys give us a rating on Spotify. Make sure you guys give us a rating on Apple. We want ratings everywhere. And guys, we got a nice Patreon that's already out. That's moving along nicely. Already got some subs. You guys should for sure check it out. We have some cool unfiltered content there just because, you know, some of our episodes did get, did get deleted from Spotify. I'm not saying we have all like conspiracy stuff on there, but we have a lot of nursing based stuff there. We have like um little nursing dialogue we do on our way back from from our shift. And we also have some cool unfiltered stuff like I mentioned before. So what's happening, Matt? Patreon's tight, man. Definitely recommend you guys checking it out and Hopefully you guys like the guests that we have on the show that we're bringing on and we're wrapping that back up. So this year we're expected to have a lot more guests than in 2020. So stay tuned for that ride. If you guys want any specific topics that we want to, you know, cover, discuss or guests, hit us up on Instagram or email us at info at couple nurses and we'll get that situated. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the U.S. life expectancy and the reduction due to COVID-19 some ICU capacity talk, and the Robin Hood and GME situation. And we save the Robin Hood GME situation for the end because, as you know, we always love to chat about that and go hardcore, and we're passionate about it. So we'll go into the science stuff first. Yeah, so that's kind of sad to hear that life expectancy has been decreasing. And this is a study that we looked at specifically, looked at um, among black people and Latino populations. They're supposed to be taking the, the hardest hit out of out of everybody else during this this whole COVID nineteen uh, pandemic going on, yeah, like people like the years of of like life expectancy for these population or these you know minorities majority whatever you want to call them, um, it's going to be decreased by like two to three years, man. That's a lot. Yeah. If you if you think about it, like you could do a lot in two to three years, you know, and then just because one thing is the life expectancy does does decrease, but also you're gonna have an increase of like comorbidities, you're going to have a lower quality of life Yeah, going up into those years, right? You're not only taking away like anywhere from between one to three years of life, you're also decreasing the quality of life prior to, to, to death. So it's like, unfortunately, we're at a very, very difficult point in, in history and it's, it's, it's going to be rough, but hopefully it's going to have a nice rebound, like a nice, nice V formation. Yeah. The way I usually think about things is because we're advancing, we're becoming such a smart civilization you would think that we're going to live longer mm. that we're taking care of ourselves better that medicine is a lot more precise now and we don't have to be so invasive like you know ir now instead of like having open procedures so mm. i would think the opposite but then when you look at this study and you know this is not shocking because you can tell the way people take care of themselves like we need yeah like life expectancy has it's like it's cool to look at because when you look at all the numbers and all these stats, this is going to be the largest single year decline in the last forty years, as the lowest life expectancy estimated since two thousand three. Yeah. So we're going back to like the two thousand and three numbers. Yeah, there is a pandemic. Yeah, that's has it going to it is going to have a giant effect on it. It's going to you know be detrimental, but it's something we have to live through and go through and then we'll guess we'll see how 2021 comes out and 2022 comes out because 2020 like i said the estimates are 
saying that people are living short lives, right? But that is during an emergency, during a pandemic. So we'll see how, how people react, what they learn from this pandemic, and how they move forward in the coming years. And then how we bounce, yeah, how we bounce mm-hmm. back. By the way, I thought my Adobe edition crashed there. I was going to tell you, hey, let's restart the podcast. Mm-hmm. But it's working. So what's going on? So the average life expectancy in 2019 was 77.48 years for the average American from birth to death. That shortened by 1.13 years. Mm-hmm. That's the average. So that's one of the largest single declines in life expectancy that we've seen in the past 40 years. Yeah, it's crazy. Like for blacks, the researchers project their life expectancy would be shortened by 2.1 years to 72.78 years. And for Latinos, by 3.05 years to 78.77. That's crazy. Your life as an African-American, as, as a black person, has the potential to be decreased by two years. That's insane, man. Yeah. That's especially like you're like a grandparent and you have grandkids, you know, that's it's sad to see, especially Latinos down by three years. Yeah. Like, you know, and then this just shows you how how like you have these comorbidities, you you don't take care of yourself because you take life, you know, lightly or not I don't want to say lightly, but lighter. And you you know, you're okay with eating out, you're okay with not exercising, you're okay with improper nutrition because you're in your if you're in your forties or fifties or thirties, you're still at that age where you could kind of take a little bit of a hit, you know, and still be able to like rebound and come back and still be strong and healthy. But as age goes on, you know, these comorbidities, these health issues, they come to rise more quickly. Yep. And you can, then you're playing catch up. And once you're playing catch up with, with the disease, it's a lot harder to manage, a lot harder to, to control instead of controlling it right off the bat. And unfortunately, now you throw in a pandemic, you throw in a, a brand new virus, and we're not, not sure how the virus, you know, 100% works, why it's targeting certain people, why it's so detrimental. We, we can't get the exact treatment options right the vaccines there but you know it's not for everybody and there's gotta be different different treatment option that we're hopefully going to have in the future or you know hopefully this virus does die down eventually and you throw this into the mix of all these comorbidities all these health issues and our body just can't take it and then our body can't take it guess what we may have one body then that's basically the end of our lives man yeah the way i see it is you have this one body as a tool and you're embodied in it you you breathe you live through it so you might as well make it a good body in a way and you know you have to take care of yourself so overall this gap between like blacks and whites is projected to widen by 40 percent so from 3.6 to 5 years that's the evidence that are what's it called that's showing that what disease disparity is causing Mm. so is it a rate remember how we talked about the whole racial thing and whether we should be adjusting medications is it back to this question where we should have different you know I don't want to say outcomes, different measures for different races, or is it the whole minority thing? People are not getting the same, fi- you know, have different financial struggle- struggles, and we should kind of close the gap on that. I think it's definitely the the health disparities way. Yeah. Um, my prior job before, you know, working here in California, majority of my patients were predominantly African-American, like, like a good, good chunk. I want to say like anywhere from like 60, 70%. And, you know, I'm... Um, you know, they don't look the healthiest. Some of them, unfortunately, have the the short end of the stick where it's they are healthy, but their genetics are causing them to have heart failure and things like that. There's there's a small portion of that, but majority of my of my prior patients were African Americans, a lot of Hispanics. Um, we did have white people as well, but the greater number of them were either Hispanic or, or black, and that just kind of shows you that that there's some kind of a it's stemming from somewhere, right? It's not it's not like a a racist culture where we're treating whites over blacks. It's not, we're, I feel like we're past that part already. It's yeah. something 
in their lives that's causing them, them to get sick at an earlier rate. And that probably is going to be, my best opinion, is going to be probably education. Yeah. Uh, because if you live in a low social economic place, what's the first thing to suffer is basically um, violence, you know, poor poor households. So where the father's not there or the mother's not there, where they they, they have a poor family structure and education, right? That, that suffer because if, if you're poor, yeah, you can go to school and still if you're poor, but you're going to take a giant hit on like your household interaction, your your how your family functions right because let's say you're barely making ends meet and your mom and dad always work like they both work nights or one works nights one works days and you only see them for maybe a two or three hours of every day that's gonna have an impact on how you grow up yeah. and, how, and how you live why because school does teach one thing but school doesn't teach everything and a lot of your knowledge you get from your parents and you get from watching your parents do things especially when you're growing up it's habit forming yeah and they provide education for you in certain aspects they allow you to look outside the box because you know a lot of things that we learn in school and i want to say a lot but some of the things that we learn in school we can kind of disprove or our parents kind of disproved for us right and we kind of learn more more by example than anything yeah. else so they're missing that aspect and that obviously plays a role in this whole education thing and plus you know if your parents aren't home and they're not putting that reinforcement in where you have to go to school yeah you're gonna ditch class you're not gonna you know go to school very often yeah. like for for my example like i used to ditch class quite a bit because my mom worked nights so she was asleep during, during the day for the most part so if somebody calls she doesn't always always pick up or she doesn't really see me going to school right I, I walked and then my dad works during the day so he can't answer any phone calls so i was in like the perfect opportunity perfect environment, you know? man. so if i didn't feel like going to school one day guess what i didn't have to go to school and i would deal with the consequences when i when i get home right and plus i had the benefit of mom didn't speak very good English, so I could just kind of bullshit whatever voicemail was left on the phone as long as I came home at, at the right time where, you know, it's expected for me to come. So it's, and that, that's just for me. And I just somebody that doesn't have any kind of reinforcement, you know, in the, in the house where they have, uh, the parents aren't, aren't the best and, you know, there's violence going on in a family or there's drugs going on in a family. Like, you're going to succumb to that and you're not going to go to school. Why would you go to school, you know? Because you're a kid, you don't want to go to school. You're basically, if, I, if every kid had a choice to go to school or not, everybody would not want to go to school. Yeah. So that, that all plays a role, like the family dynamics, the education, the schooling. And of course, like I said before, it's all stemming from like social economics for the most part, you know. So that's why maybe like people have some ideas of like a universal income might not be the, the worst idea. But, you know, it could go both ways. It's just a giant complex issue to solve that hopefully, ideally, would get better over time. And I want to say it has gotten better over time, except we're in like a very big pandemic. So that's probably going to skew the stats a little bit. But I feel like in general, we are doing a good job as a whole society to kind of level the playing field for, for everybody, for the minorities. But I just feel like it's not happening quick enough and I don't really have a solution to speed it up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's no solutions to it. The way I kind of see it, too, is um, you mentioned that habit forming is not only for the disease process, but it's also habits that you have with lifestyle changes, with the way you grow up, and it all affects everything. Because if you look at the the feedback loop of a habit, right, it's routine, reward, trigger. And your brain doesn't know right from wrong, right, what kind of habit it is. And you just keep on forming those habits, whether it's ditching school or whether it's eating that specific type of food or whether your mom taught you how to be more violent or she didn't teach you how to, like, you know, have manners. Like, it, all, yeah, it all plays. It goes, it all goes for full circle, man. So that's why I appreciate... You know, I don't think my parents were very super self-aware where they taught me how to do all these things. I feel like I learned it myself, but shout out to all the, you know, great parents that teach their kids self-awareness and how to like cope properly and have these positive emotional outlets, you know. Yeah. Like habits are super hard to to start and maintain, 
but I feel like they're even harder to break. I feel like breaking a habit is harder than starting a habit because for you to break a habit, you have to consciously be, be aware of like your, your, cause you reach a point where your body just naturally wants to do these things, right? Like eat junk food. Like it's, it's okay to like, if you eat a lot of junk food, your body's always going to crave that junk food. You're always going to go for that junk food, right? So it's hard to tell your body to say no because you're mentally craving it and you're physically craving it, right? Compared to like somebody that let's say doesn't make their bed every morning, right? It's easier to start making your bed every morning compared to like breaking a habit. Yeah. Why? Because you can remind yourself to, to do the bed and then you do it, right? Compared to having to break a habit where you have to fight against your, your body, your will, you know? Yeah. And then when you're starting a habit, you're starting something new. So your body doesn't really have have like a, it's not really rejecting it as, as harshly as it is when you're breaking a habit. No, you're right. I actually looked something on, online here called mm -hmm. the habit testing. So one, of course, you need self-awareness, correct? You need to identify this habit and you have to find what is, what am I habitually doing, right? Mm -hmm. Once you identify it, you have to understand the commonalities, right? What is this habit causing me to do? How is it making me feel? What are the consequences, right? Because if you tell yourself, hey, I don't want to eat late at night, but for some reason you're off work, you just tend to eat late at night, you have this double-edged sword where you knew what you wanted to do, you still didn't do it, now you woke up and you felt like shit, right? And then the last thing goes, you have to modify this, right? You have to adapt to the, the flow of what you actually want to do and align yourself and you have to learn and of course, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that cause and effect model, it's very, it's very nice to look at if you're one of those people that like stress eats, that it's hard to catch yourself, but once you do, you're just like, damn, I can't believe I'm, I'm eating because I'm stressed. But especially like with nurses, a lot of times, you know, we get nurses that snack at night. Why? Because you're running around, you're stressed, and then what does that quick quick carb do or some or that chocolate, you know, get you dopamine, makes you Hell feel yeah. good, makes you feel happy. So, so that's hard to catch yourself. And even I do that at work too when I have a stressful day. Like and those not, Hershey chocolates yeah. in the freaking cart. Right, and I'm running around a lot, I'm just like, damn, I'm just gonna have a piece of chocolate. It makes you feel like a little bit better. And that's that's literally what stress eating is. Yeah. Is you're, eat, eat, letting it, you're eating it not because like you want to, not because you're hungry, not because you're craving that. It's because you want a break from that stress. Yeah. You want to break that that a, a chain reaction of, of you being stressed. And that gives you a little bit more of like a, a better mood, basically. And that's literally stress eating. Because some of us, like like me, I tell myself, I'm not gonna eat it late at night. And I still eat it late at night. I'm not stressed on my off days. You know, I still eat it late at night. This is, this is poor willpower. You know, I tell myself I'm not going to eat late at night. And then, you know, somebody brings like, you know, like a brownie. I'm just like, you know, tell myself I was going to eat late, but there's a brownie here. here. It is. Not going to be brownie tomorrow, so I'm supposed to eat it today. That's, that's just poor willpower. That's all that is compared to like stress eating. It's, it's also like, you know, it sucks because at work you're stressed out. So eating that piece of Hershey or that little chocolate kind of just changes your emotional state temporarily. It makes mm -hmm. you feel that much better than you already are. And that's what's so addicting about it because you could just like reach with your hands and take something in your mouth and change your emotional state just like that. It's, so damn it's, almost, it's almost addicting. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, last thing about these whole the whole life expectancy, it's crazy because we are this dominant country, United States of America. But yet when it comes to life expectancies, we're ranking number 43. Yeah. Like we're way down on the totem pole. And we're this, you know, super advanced country. Like we should start taking care of ourselves or start finding out ways where we could increase our life expectancy that that'd be great imagine if america figured out how to live longer and happier imagine how that would look you know because we are this global economy where our gdp is amazing but yet we're suffering 
in the healthcare um, s- sector and also with like, you know, with death, man, we're dying early. Even with diabetes, we're, we're very high on like the diabetes um, list. So if you just look up like Google, like percentage of diabetes by, by country, we're ranked in the 40s, you know, compared to, we're actually ranked 43. And compared to the major countries, we ha- only people that are in front of us is basically Egypt's at 10. And then you have Saudi Arabia at 14, Qatar's at 60, Mexico, Mexico at 20. And next major country is us at 30. Everybody else, Germany, China, all those all the major countries, Russia, they're all below us. Poland, you know, yeah. they're all below us. So diabetes is definitely, definitely has been ramping up. And we know we should cover one day how McDonald's, because McDonald's wasn't always the United States, right? Like it got founded at, at, at some point in time. I wonder after the creation of McDonald's and fast food, how much has that increased diabetes statistically? Yeah, that'd be hard to find though, man. I don't think so. I think it'd be pretty easy. Just I think it'd be easier to find. Just nobody talks about it because McDonald's is just so so powerful and so so good, so delicious. Yeah, you know, because we had McDonald's once in a while. We had McDonald's what, like last month. We had it last week because we were um, out on our oh, yeah, trip we were last week. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that was open, and I believe I got a chicken sandwich. Did you? Yeah, I got a, I got a McChicken, spicy McChicken. That was Went good. down. See, no regrets, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, guys. And I remember last episode we did. We had some. We talked a little bit about the decreased amount of COVID-19 uh, patients. And somebody actually mentioned, because we were talking a, little, talking a little bit of smack about it, we we're t- basically saying that it's crazy how drastically these COVID cases dropped just basically by having a new president in charge, right? Yes. So somebody brought, brought up the, the point saying that, hey, it's not the change in administration that brought this COVID-19 cases down. It's because statistics are showing that the ICU rates are down in hospitals. So me and I did some digging, and we actually looked at some information from December 30th of 2020, and the ICU capacity was at 88%. And Make it, sure you know that this is just in California. Just, just yes, just in up. California, not not um, not United States-wide. And then look, so December 30th, 2020, ICU capacity in Cali was 88%. And as of January 21st, the capacity is 89%. So it doesn't seem like any ICU capacity has has, has decreased, but the COVID numbers looks like they are downtrending. I haven't looked at them, them the today. The cases, yeah. The cases are downtrending, but I haven't personally looked at them them today. But this still shows that, you know, it's within like a, a little bit less than a month, ISK capacity hasn't really, really changed much. Yeah. And I actually went and we have a link down there for you guys if you guys want to check it out. It's like a COVID tracker radar where it shows you by, by county in California how much of the ICs are filled. And the majority of them are in the high 80s and 90s. Yeah, Los Angeles, where we work, our IC mm-hmm. capacity is 93% right now. Yeah. Like, we're always stacked. We're always fighting for a code bed. Right. We're always trying to downgrade anybody possible that we can. Yeah. So, regarding California, like, our numbers really aren't aren't down. We still have just as sick patients this week compared to last week, compared to the week before and all that. It doesn't seem like at least our ICU is still packed. We still have very sick of patients. We still have ECMOs going on. We still have CRTs going on. And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of a lessening of of COVID-19 in our hospital yeah so like we took the whole yeah I think the issue was here that we didn't look show this data we kind of just looked at we just took like a political spin on it so I understand when people are upset that we just kind of like look at politics and we say hey this that you know like we have our reasons or opinions and why we kind of share things right but when you look at this and if you you know based on the governor he wanted 15 percent capacity always to be there that threshold that means that the capacity should be at 75 percent before we start making any changes mm. so that's why 
we kind of scratched ourselves on the head and said, well, if the capacity is still at 89, it hasn't really changed. Why open back things up? But they're projecting that it's going to go down. So, yeah. you know, you just never know. You never know. Like, if, according to the stats, cases are going down. So eventually, the hospitals are going to follow suit. Where we're going to have less COVID-positive ICU patients, less med surge patients, less telepatients. There's less of COVID-19 in general. But we'll see when that comes. I said that thing. We probably still have a few months. Um, I mean, like the case count, we know those numbers could be skewed. We're not saying they are or anything, anything like that. But, you know, it's it's easier for, for numbers to be skewed on like a, just like on like a, on a line graph compared to actually witnessing it in the hospital, you know? Yeah, and I went to go get my fit test done. Uh, fit test is basically putting the mask on and making sure I could, you know, not get any virus particles in my mouth or whatever or not i'm sorry in my nose when i'm breathing things in i failed it anyway except to wear a pepper but when i talked to the pa she told me that they're actually testing a lot less mm-hmm. so she said that the cdc changed a little bit of the guidelines and they're not like testing everybody like they were yeah so if there's a reduction in who you're testing and now you're only testing people that show symptoms not testing anybody that wishes to be tested now things are going to change a little bit. Now there's a reduction in testing, which should show a correlation of decreasing cases, right? Yeah. So there's, I hate that there's so much variables being put into place that I can't present somebody the data for what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, hard it's hard because there's so many variables changing. Yes, I can say that the governor's not making sense based on the data, but there's also these other things that are happening now. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to create an educated guess, but we're trying our best here and this is the way that we feel about the situation. Yeah, I'm looking at these numbers right now, these case counts, and they're like 50% lower than they were last week. Like here's the January 29th, new cases, 19,000. And compared to, let's say, January 15th, so 10 days or 14 days ago, two weeks ago, uh, they're at 40,000. So it's like a 50% drop in case in case count. Like, is it because, like you said, if they're testing less, you know, that'll, that, that'll be your, your rationale for it. Because they're obviously not testing the same amount of people, right? Because yeah. how do we go from, how do we cut cases in half within a matter of two weeks? Like, how does that happen? We didn't introduce anything. With, I don't think the vaccine is, is, is that quick in action, right? Yeah. Like, we have a vaccinated majority of people. How do these cases get dropped by 50%? Logically thinking it would be because less testing, right? Yeah. You know what I also find sad, man? When it comes to this whole vaccine rollout, I don't understand why we didn't vaccinate the people that are most at risk that makes logical sense for me right this makes like elderly you're thinking about the elderly yeah like we don't know how bad these nursing homes are so the rationale supposedly it's really bad so the rationale for that is why they vaccinated medical professionals first is because if an x amount of us get sick yeah you're you're, you're risking the healthcare system exactly yeah so yeah you're you're kind of pushing not really pushing a uh, the major solution because like we've we've noticed like we've said multiple times it's the elderly that are getting really sick and those are the ones that are most susceptible to COVID-19 but looking at like a longevity picture it's probably more rational to vaccinate healthcare providers first responders because in this point in time I don't want to sound like a dick but we are more valuable to a society than like you want to say the elderly yeah. from like a like a kind of like a social economic standpoint and if this pandemic were to extend and, and get, get real bad, right? Because, you know, first of all, we are the ones 
doing this job, we are the ones that are dealing with COVID-19 patients on a daily. So our chance of getting sick is higher than everybody else's. You think about that theoretically. And yeah, that's basically it. This kind of come kind of shady. Like in a perfect world, in a perfect world, we would have enough vaccines to first vaccinate healthcare professionals and at the same time also vaccinate the, the most vulnerable. Yeah. But you know, we don't live in a perfect world and that's kind of how this is kind of how, how it works. And also, if you want to hype up a good vaccine, you would most likely give it to healthier individuals first, see how they do, and then give it to the elderly. Because let's yes. just say we're having reactions to it. We're having side effects. Imagine how much high side effects are going to be for the elderly because they already are a little more immunocompromised. Their organs aren't oh, the best, right? So this is kind of like a giant big test for the most part. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Like, you know, we got to do experiments. It's science. You got to do what you got to do. But basically why they did this is one, because we are healthcare professionals, so we have to be alive. And two, if our bodies can't handle it, their bodies aren't going to be able to handle it either. Straight business, man. Figure it all out, guys. Yeah. Figure it out on the show, man. You make a very good point. And I understand because of like the, what's it called? Availability of vaccines. We just have to prioritize somebody. And mm -hmm. in this case, um, it was the healthcare worker. Yeah. So th there's this um, little news section that I found here, but we're not going to talk too much about it because the, the research study was private, meaning we had to pay for it. Peter and I aren't in freaking college, so we don't have access to all these cool research studies. If you guys want to give us your account, sure, we could look up some studies. Yeah. Uh, but th it was really fascinating because they created this intelligent DNA nanogel where it, it targets FEN1, which is FLAP endonucleus 1. It's an enzymatic biomarker that, that is highly overexpressed as cancer cells and isn't in normal counterparts. So this target, this is basically targeted cancer therapy where the, the the gel the nanoparticles are able to target specific cells and not kill other healthy cells based on this um, biomarker which as you know most chemo drugs are you know at risk of killing both type of cells which is bad so this actually uh, destroys it or just uh, identifies it it seems like it's um highly targeted so it tar targets specific um, cancer cells so remember of course i wasn't able to look into the study so mm -hmm. i don't know what cancer has this enzymatic biomarker yeah so i'm reading it here real quick so the brand new strategies introduced in the current report could break new ground in designing drug carriers for eliminating unwanted side effects of chemotherapy agents and live cell probes for cancer risk assessment diagnosis and prognosis so it's for assessment diagnosis and prognosis interesting so so right now, what it seems like they're doing with this is just identification. Because like you said, Matt, before the the, the FAN1 yeah. biomarker is overexposing in cancer cells, right? So yeah. that's actually really good for, for identification, right? Because if it's super exposed in the cancer cells and underexposed in regular cells, we'll know what cells are cancerous compared to the, the good ones. Because a lot of times with cancer, guys, it's hard to identify what cell has cancer and what cell, what cell is cancerous and what cell isn't because they look the same because they, they mutate so quickly and so effectively, especially in like the, the, like the earlier stages, it's hard to recognize, right? But this, this is actually beautiful because if this is overexposed, then we could easily target this and say, hey, this is overexposing FEN1. This is a cancer cell. Yeah, it's the same thing with like the organon chip. And I believe when we interviewed uh, Dr. Ricky, right? He was mm -hmm. talking about that he's working on um, cancer therapy that does exactly this. Yeah. But it's in its like early stages. They're still trying to figure out whether you know, some kind of intelligent nano cell chip or whatever it is could deliver 
therapy to that specific cell and destroy the cancer where it is, you know? Yeah. It would be perfect because like maybe we might not use this for for like destroying the cancer cell, but this gives us the ability to be a lot more accurate with medication yeah. that we have. So instead of doing like a wide dose of chemo or a wide dose of radiation, you might be able to target this this better. Yeah, or, same, same or, thing with like the, um, speak, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of diagnosis, imagine when you have a PET scan, right? A PET scan yeah. just usually radiates you up and you see this concentration of where your white blood cells are. Imagine having something like this where it's less invasive. Mm. I don't know, maybe you charge some kind of iodine particle on it. I don't know how they do things. And you're able to identify where the inflammation, where the cancer is located and then have specific targeted tools for whatever, you know, you're doing to fight off that cancer. Right. Well, it'd be cool too to see if this is possible. I'm not sure how they are or how far that with cancer research, but maybe since they could locate this, looks like fairly accurately, maybe they could create med medications that can target this FEN1 biomarker. Yeah. Maybe be able to mutate that or be able to do something with that and, and destroy that. So maybe they could create this medication where it just affects an overabundance, overexposed FEN1 enzyme. You know, that could, this could be a revolutionary, but it would be cool to have Dr. Ricky back on and see if he knows anything about this because yeah. we know nanoparticles exist. You know, we have, we're able to super target certain cells instead of, you know, the widespread damage that we used to cause back in the day with, with our basic chemo, right? And science moves on, we're able to figure out things more accurately, more quickly, and we're also able to target certain cells more accurately, more quickly. So this is breathtaking stuff for, for cancer because as we know, as we age, the more the older you get, the higher risk you have for cancer. And how amazing would it be for cancer to kind of be more of like a diabetes kind of chronic disease compared to being life and death, you know? Because when you hear somebody say diabetes, you, you're like, okay, they have, they have diabetes, that sucks. But you know they could still live quite a bit through it. Yeah. You know, there's kids that have juvenile diabetes that they live a normal life. They live to be 80, 70 years old and without without any issues. But when you hear the word cancer, you really think of like limited of time. Yeah, worst case scenario. Where, yeah, worst case scenario. And you already as soon as you hear the word cancer, you really think that person's gonna die before they should. So imagine we're at a point where cancer is just like a chronic disease that we that we unfortunately we get. And it's manageable. What's manageable and it's treatable. And yeah, even with, with diabetes. Life expectancy does drop by by quite a bit, but with a lot of cancers, your life expectancy drops a lot more than with diabetes. So imagine if you could put that in the same box with like hypertension and diabetes, where you do have a shorter life expectancy, but it's not as drastic and as intense as it is with with, with cancer. That that would be great. Yeah. And or even if you could figure out how to decrease the side effects, because a lot of the side effects people experience with cancer is because of medication that we give them, not the cancer itself. You know, the cancer destroys your body with with within you inside you but the medication that we give you also destroy your body yeah chemo is like, is where you're you know losing hair and mm -hmm. everything else that's happening you're yeah. feeling like shit i'm also wondering because remember those sprays i had from poland mm -hmm. it was a doctor from hungary and he created nanotechnology and specifically this nanotechnology is able to activate the um, telomeres on the dna and make them longer and that in return save that DNA, save that tissue, and actually help with like cellular regeneration. Mm -hmm. um, and he was locked up for a certain amount of time. And I believe he had to patent the technology as a cosmetic, because if it was as medicine, the pharmaceutical companies of Europe would kind of go after him or whatever country he was in. Mm -hmm. You probably need a prescription stuff too then. Exactly. So there, it was sold as a cosmetic. Like um, 
I believe I put it when I got like um, went out to the club and I got my eyelid busted. Like I kept spraying it and get stitches and like my eye completely healed where you see a small scar. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where this technology of nanoparticles advances in the future. We should do a research. We should do some research on that, on that product that you have. Like some, some deep, deep research. Like find the mechanism of action and if that's actually any kind of valid validity and stuff like that. Because that'd be cool. Too long. Because I use that spray for like my scar here. And I mean, it didn't really do anything. But, but like I said, it helped your eyelid. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of research I want to do. First, I want to actually tackle the whole um, face mask thing. I want to look more into everything that's happening now. Yeah. So anyways, last thing we're going to talk about is the whole Google, or I'm sorry, the whole Robin Hood and GameStop situation. And piggybacking off that, Google removed 100,000 negative reviews from the stock trading app Robin Hood off the Google Play Store. And... Uh, Wednesday to Thursday of what's today's week? We are the, the week of uh, January twenty fourth to the thirtieth. So um, that that app that you could uh, trade stocks on, and I own it myself. It dropped from four stars to one star. So Google went ahead and just removed all the bad reviews. Yeah. And this just shows you that this goes beyond the whole. Oh, they removed some reviews. This goes to the point where our voice continuously gets censored on the internet and we talk about it all the damn time. And now we're seeing it full circle, whether it's with Twitter in this situation, it's continuously happening and the small people are always getting screwed over. And it it was never about left versus right or black versus right. It was always about this. It was always about us versus them. And that's these large corporations that are turning our bill of rights to terms and conditions, terms of service. And with terms of service, able to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. So I'm sure Peter could go into the the backbone of what exactly happened with that stock and the whole uh, Reddit of Wall Street bets. Yeah, I feel like I've been talking about this for like the last like like five days. And I'm definitely on a hype train, so we'll see what comes out of this. But basically what happened, if you guys don't know, I know this their initial release, I'm sure you guys probably done a lot of research because this is going to be released quite a bit after the, the actual happening of this event. But basically, there was some hedge funds that were betting against a company called GameStop. If you remember GameStop from back in the day, I mean, they're, they're still around. They just don't do, do very well anymore because, you know, everyone shops on Amazon, buys stuff online. No one really goes to a store to buy games anymore. And their business model was built on people buying and sharing games right in their stores. So company obviously wasn't doing the best. Their, their stock market shares, they're, they're not priced very highly and people are expecting them to go down, right? So these hedge funds are betting that price is going to go down. So when this happens, they basically call it a short where the company borrows a stock, amount of stock, sells it for a price, and then buys it back again for a cheaper price, and then returns that stock to where it got it from. So it makes a lot of money, but the way they make money is based on a company doing bad, right? Which is which is pretty shitty to look at. Like if you guys remember Tesla, Tesla had a lot of short sellers like last year, year before that, and people were against Tesla. Like they wanted to, to price to drop. That's when they make their money off of. So that's it's people make a lot of money on it. Is it a ethical business model? Probably not. Like you're betting on someone's failure, basically. Yeah. So you're gonna, you know, if you're betting on a company's failure, you want that company to drop to zero, ideally, or, or go bankrupt because then you make a shit ton of money. Right. And then when you look at it from like an outside perspective, not just a head of function perspective, you know, when a company fails, they lose jobs, people lose money, but people are, are able to profit off that, off people's losses. And that's kind of what's happening with, with GameStop. So, so a few smart people on Wall Street Bets uh, off Reddit, they realized that, hey, this company is getting, getting shorted so much. 
where there's not enough shares to go around to for to to sell and buy back to to, to return right so these guys came out with the idea where we're going to keep buying these shares because these companies are these hedge funds are forced to buy shares so if they're buying the shares and we're buying the shares prices automatically going to go up and there's not enough shares for everybody if there's not enough shares for everybody everyone's trying to buy them right so prices are going to skyrocket and that's what happened it went from like 30 bucks or 40 bucks to like 300 or like 290 within a few days just because there wasn't enough shares to go around and these people have to return these hedge funds have to return these stocks at a certain day it's like expiration date so they have, they have to buy buy up an x amount of, amount of shares to return from where they initially borrowed it from and you know like i said reddit found that out and they're basically battling it out they're trying to raise the price so these hedge funds and these companies that were banking on this company failing now have to pay millions if not billions of dollars extra yeah. to kind of keep moving with their company and the dilemma here is that hedge funds can do that hedge funds can kind of pick and choose who should who gets you know kind of thrown underneath the bus where they're losing money but when the average joe the ordinary people we the people uh, notice this and we start buying stocks all of a sudden we can't do that we can't play the same game that the hedge funds are doing yeah. so they can do that but if we start doing that within 48 hours look what happened they did not give us the ability to buy that stock friday morning and robin hood is robin the whoever is responsible of this where they stopped us from buying a stock because just for the sake of maybe saving a hedge fund or whatever the case might be whatever this was illegal i think there has to be some consequences some liability i think the uh the ceo of barstool sports even said that yeah. somebody should be going to jail for this. So like this all is basically just revolves around Wall Street. So Wall Street makes billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's it's a giant craze. It's companies making billions of dollars. And what we learned today, or not today, or these past couple of days, is Wall Street's okay with low restrictions. The open rules, market. Open market, the rules that we have now, they're okay with that as long as it benefits them. And if you're in a free free economy, a free market, both sides should be able to do basically whatever they want with these stocks, right? So this just shows you that when Wall Street is not getting its way, they have the power to turn things things their way. Because what do we see happening? So these hedge funds are losing billions of dollars. So they basically told Robinhood and other lot of platforms who's hey, stop allowing people to buy Jamie GameStop. So Robinhood did it was said, okay, we're gonna stop the buying of GameStop but you guys could still sell so why not just say hey we're gonna halt all trading you can't buy you can't sell they didn't do that they just said you can still you can still sell but you can't buy so if i can't buy the only thing i can do do is sell what's gonna happen and if i'm nervous i'm gonna sell right and that caused the price to go down but when i was doing some research you know regarding this situation is the trading that was going on during this time where buying was restricted, the price plummeted by like 50%, right? Which is expected. But the word on the street is that these hedge funds were just selling GME stock back and forth between other companies. So they, wouldn't, they were never, never really got any rid of any of their shares. They were just buying it back and forth to manipulate the numbers so the price could drop. People could get scared and think it's just over. Things like that. So it's crazy how, it's crazy to look at when... The stock market isn't going the way a certain amount of people wanted wanted to go. They're able to have this kind of influence over it and yeah. turn it their way. And this is complete market manipulation. And, and this yeah. is something that's that is illegal. You can't manipulate the market. Same way you can't do pumps and dumps. That that's that's it's illegal. And the crazy thing about this is, 
by them stopping the buying of GameStop, they probably saved themselves millions, if not billions of dollars because the price dropped and whoever sold it, they were able to scoop out those shares. But it's crazy because the amount that they're going to pay in fees from going to court is still a lot less than they would have lost if they just would have resumed trading. And that's what they're banking on. And that's that's what they're gonna go with. I mean, that's a smart option if any investor standpoint. Hey, screw it. Let's just sway the market in our favor and we'll just deal with the fines because our losses from fines and court fees are gonna be a lot less than the amount we're gonna lose due to these average Joe traders over here. And because you made that statement, I hope the government doesn't pass up on this rare opportunity to genuinely protect us because we are the victims of this um, this abuse mm. from large corporations where you know they could do that, but we can't. And that's that's a freaking problem. So I hope... Somebody should go to jail. Yeah, and I hope our government stands up for this shit, man. I hope that they just don't look the other way because that's where all the money is. Mm. You know, in 08, Obama bailed out Wall Street. They had their, you know, they had their freaking bailout. And now, like, we just got to say, no, man, this is, this is enough, man. They're stealing. And even look at Robin. Look at Robin's Hood commercial where, like, I forgot what the quote was, but they're they're doing the exact opposite of whatever commercial they released a month ago. And they're, apps called Robin Hood, like Robin Hood, you know, took away from the rich, gave to the poor, and they did this they did the exact fucking opposite. They stole exact money opposite. from their own clients yeah. to cover the hedge funds. Yeah, it's crazy times, dude. And it's just yeah, it's just it just shows you if you have the money and the power, like you could just consistently keep winning. You know, yeah. If you get to a certain part of life where you have a certain amount of fuck you money. That just shows you you can't lose. It's very hard for you to lose, especially especially this. If I'm losing billions of dollars and I could just call, make a few phone calls and say, hey, stop me losing money. And it's just, you just stop losing money. Like how, that's, that's crazy, dude. So, so much for free. This is not a, not a, I hope Robin Hood, honestly, I'm thinking about pulling out my money on Robin Hood if this doesn't go according to plan. I don't know where I'm also going to put it, but Robin Hood is just so easy to use, so user-friendly where it's like, like what else are you going to use? But somebody should definitely go to jail. Like this shouldn't just happen. It shouldn't happen. Like it's it's ridiculous how how it all played out into like the hedge funds' hands too. Yeah, and like we're so aware of this of like what happens and like the corporations that like you know we, we say this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We we know what happens. Like this is this is just another playbook, man. So hopefully this hopefully our show and like everything we talk about and sometimes maybe it's not the best. Maybe sometimes you don't believe in our opinion fully. You're like, damn, these guys are a little bit cuckoo, and that's okay. But we want you to take the red pill and see things for what it is. And then formulate your own opinion, as we always say. Take things with a grain of salt. Yeah. And watch The Matrix, too. If you guys haven't seen The Matrix, you should watch The Matrix. We should put that on a shirt design, dude. Matrix? Grain of salt. Grain of salt. And yeah. sprinkle it in there with, like, our, unless our hands. Or, unless you're hypertensive. Yeah. <laughs> then you well, better that's go low. restriction. Huh? Yeah. Unless you're restriction. Sprinkle some potassium there. Yeah. Alrighty, guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. We talked about... The U.S. life expectancy, the reduction due to COVID. Talked about some ICU capacities, some DNA nanogel, and we then kind of bounced around with Robinhood and GameStop with what's happening. Thank you guys for tuning in for another beautiful episode of Cup of News, episode 35. Appreciate you all your love and support. Chat next week. Have an amazing day, guys. Peace. <laughs>